Let's move on to our message today. It's Christ fullness in the home, part three. Colossians 3, 22 to 4, 1. The word of God reads, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eyes on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity in heart, sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would just fill the lives and the hearts and the homes of those who are struggling right now, those who are going through this lockdown, especially those in those local government areas. Father, we pray that you would just comfort their hearts. Father, once again, even in a visceral way, touch them in such a way that they'll know that you are real, that you are alive, that you're there, that you care for them. Connect them with you, God, and may their hope truly be in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for this sermon, and we pray, God, that you speak to us so that we might just want to do all in our lives to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, we're now at our last part in our series on Christ's fullness in the home. And today we're going to talk about masters and slaves. Now, here in Sydney, that master-slave relationship, that master-slave concept is, is kind of foreign to us because it doesn't really exist within our lives. But in the context of the Colossians uh, letter here and in the Roman Empire, it was everywhere. It was huge, right? You know, I've been reading a lot of books this week, and historians disagree as to the extent of slavery back in the Roman Empire. Some people have it. Some historians have it at 50% of the empire. Others have it up to 80%. And just to kind of give you an idea, that's between 60 million and 90 million slaves in the Roman Empire. To give you perspective, Australia only has 26 million people right now, less than actually. So it's double, if not triple, the amount of people we have in Australia. That's how many slaves were in the Roman Empire, most of them because they were conquered by the Roman Empire. Slavery dominated that society. It was everywhere. And almost, you know, many, many, many households have slaves. And that's why it's absolutely appropriate for the Apostle Paul to address this master-slave relationship because many of those relationships existed within the home. That was actually a fundamental relationship inside the home. And the goal, once again, talking about uh, these household relationships was what? It's fullness in Christ. The goal was to establish Christ's fullness inside the home. And we said that that fullness is actually expressed through the thankful worship of Jesus Christ by modeling his peace and his love the gospel truths to each other inside of our homes. And when we do that, not only does Christ become worshipped, but we point our other household members to Jesus Christ. Now, the difference is, though, however, this week, compared to the relationships in the past, is that this particular relationship, this master-slave relationship, was a relationship that was not created by God. God brought man and woman together to be married, husband and wife. We talked about that. That was created by God. They had children, which was also created by God. But this particular master-slave relationship was something that was created by man. And that's why Paul affirms that distinction in verse 22 when he calls masters earthly 
masters. He's really, you know, he's making that distinction that this was not created by God. But what's interesting is that God still gives uh, godly instructions on how this relationship was supposed to operate. And the reason why is because the goal was what? Christ's fullness inside the home. He wanted every home that had Christians to have Christ's fullness. It was supposed to fill the homes of believers. Every home that they had back then and that we need to have today are gospel centers. They're to be worship centers for Jesus Christ. But how are we to do that, if, especially if there's non-believers inside the home and it's, you know, if your master wasn't a believer or if the slave wasn't a believer? Colossians 3.17, which is kind of like the thematic verse of this section, it says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. And this verse says that because of new life with Christ, we can now do all things for the glory of God, giving thanks to him, not just in the home, but everywhere. And not just in the relationships that were created by God, but now in every relationship that exists, you know, Christian, non-Christian, that's how we can do it. And that's why this particular verse, as well as this whole passage, this Colossians 3 passage, really serves, you know, a lot of, a lot of Christians today use this particular verse and these, this particular passage to establish a biblical foundation on how we are to live out our vocations for the glory of God today, especially in secular environments where there are a lot of non-believers out there. And we'll actually touch upon that at the end of our sermon today. But the questions that a lot of Christians, especially in the 21st century, ask when they reach passages like this are, are these, you know, hey, hold up, isn't slavery wrong? You know, why doesn't Paul just command masters to liberate all their slaves knowing that slavery is wrong? Or they might ask questions like, you know, why, don't, why doesn't Paul just, you know, command all the slaves to fight for their freedom? Because they're now equals in Christ. And let me just give you the quick answer to all those questions. The quick answer to all those questions is, I don't know. There are actually a lot of things I could say. That I could give you all these other reasons. But I think every reason simply invites a lot, of, lot more you know, objections. So, you know, and the reality is, I think I'd just be postulating if I were to try to answer all those objections. And so I'm just simply going to say, I don't really know. And I'm sorry that I don't really know, but... You know, I tried to find the answers to that, but there was nothing that satisfied me. But what I do know is that you're right. Slavery is wrong. And Paul here doesn't explicitly speak against slavery. But one thing that this passage does do is that it undermines slavery right, very, very powerfully. And it did that by elevating both the master and the slave into the identity in which God calls them to, in which God has given them, which is full-fledged human beings who have the choice in every moment of every day to serve God in everything that they do and to bless each other within that household by doing so. There's one last thing I want to say before we get into the text itself, and it's this. You know, I thought about, I, th this week I really thought about that question of why doesn't Paul address this issue of slavery? And it led me to think about freedom and what true freedom is. You know, and I was a little bit critical. I just thought, man, how can Paul, this is my question, how can Paul encourage these people who are enslaved to practice their freedom in Christ 
and to practice their fullness in Christ while enslaved. I mean, that's a little bit like cruel, isn't it? It's at least insensitive. But then the only answer that I could come to that actually makes sense is this. There must be a slavery that is so much greater and so much more wicked than the one these slaves find themselves in, one that is way beyond what they are experiencing now. And of course there is. And that slavery is slavery to sin, right? Sin enslaves us for an eternity in hell. And not only is sin in our day, you know, while we're alive here on earth, not only is sin a cruel master, but the suffering that occurs in hell is much more than anything that any of us can experience while here on earth. And that goes on for an eternity. Therefore, when we think about what true freedom is, true freedom is liberation from that which enslaves us in our sins and condemns us to an eternity in hell and prevents us from living in the fullness that Christ and God designed and created our lives to be. And the and only the gospel of Jesus Christ sets us free from the slavery of sin. Therefore, anyone who has been saved and freed from sin now can have true freedom to live for the glory of God in all that they do, no matter what circumstances they might find themselves in. And unfortunately, in our passage today, there are Christians who are probably in one of the worst circumstances that any human being can be in, which is the institution of slavery. But if they can live out their lives of slavery fully, and thankfully, each and every single day, because of Jesus Christ, for their true master, Jesus Christ, then any Christian, in any circumstance, can do exactly the same. What Jesus Christ did through the cross and the resurrection is huge, right? And therefore, our faith in Jesus Christ has the power to transform everything. So with that sorted, with that, you know, that introduction, I know it was a long introduction. You know, let's get to our passage today. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to explain the verses first and foremost in, in, the, in the manner in which everyone would have heard it 2,000 years ago. And then I want to end with some practical instructions on how that applies to us in 2021, especially within our work life, our vocations, and how they can be used for the glory of God. But even as I go through this first part, you know, please listen, because there are some powerful and amazing principles and teachings that can really transform how we work today. So let's get to our passage today. Verses 20 to 25 are addressed to slaves. 4.1 is addressed to masters. Let's begin with slaves, and there are five points that Paul wants to make to slaves. And the first is this. Slaves are to obey their masters in everything. Verse 22 says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. That had to have been tough to hear for slaves. Why? Because they already obey their masters in everything. If not, they'll get punished. So they, they obey everything their masters already say. So when they read that particular command, I got to think that kind of depressed them a little bit, right? Um, to make things worse, slaves were in general, treated very, very 
poorly. And so if a Christian had a cruel master, this is definitely not what you wanted to hear. But the point that God is making is this. He's saying that the moment we become Christians, who we serve changes. Therefore, how we serve must change as well, right? And it's not a call to do anything different, but it really is a call to do all things differently. Why? Because we now serve a greater master who is Jesus Christ, right? And so we can now obey, slaves can now obey their masters in everything because they are obeying Jesus. Their obedience to their earthly masters becomes their worship to Christ. And the way we are treated or the way they are treated is no excuse not to obey. We'll talk a little bit more about worshiping Christ in, in the next few points. But number two, we are to work with true integrity. Verse 22, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. You know, sometimes slaves would work harder, believe it or not, when their masters were watching. And then they would kind of slack off when their masters weren't watching, right? We've never done anything like that, have we, right? You know, sometimes slaves worked hard when it made them look good in front of their masters. Sometimes they would work hard if it made them look better than other slaves. We have no idea what that's like because we would never do anything like that. But if we do, and if we ever did, God hates that type of Worker. Why? Because that person is filled with hypocrisy. That person is modeling falsehood with their lives. And Christian, that's not what Christians do, right? God hates that. God's worker models integrity, whether the boss is watching or not. And he trusts that it's God. God is the one who promotes or demotes. And therefore, because we trust in God, we do our work for God's eyes only. Once again, how we work and who we work for matters to God. Therefore, work with true integrity, knowing that the true master is watching you at all times. Which leads our to our next point, which leads to our next point. Number three, we work to serve the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human Masters. Now, slave work 2,000 years ago was rarely pleasant. It was probably never pleasant, quite honestly. And there was never any hope of promotion. There was never any hope of advancement, whether personally or professionally, if, if it's possible to you know, advance as a slave. Um, most of that work was dirty. It was difficult. It was repetitive, mundane, painful. Yet God, in this verse, calls them to do all that work with all their Hearts. That phrase literally means to be fully dedicated and fully devoted with the fear of God in mind. Right? What's that teaching us? God is saying that every task that you're assigned, every work that we are given, now has the potential to be worship to the Lord. Right? That's huge. Every work, every task, every school assignment has the potential to be worship to God. And what makes it worship has nothing to do with the worthiness of the work. What makes it worship has nothing to do with the worthiness of the one who assigned it, 
right? The master who assigns that work. The word, you know, the word, what makes it worship simply has to do with the attitude of our hearts, who we do it for, and how we choose to do it, right? Therefore, train yourself to make all your work a worship to God. You know, a lot of times we get, we get tempted to slack off in our work. We get tempted to give bare minimum when whatever we're assigned is so like below us, you know, when it's so like mundane or we're not going to get anything out of it. It's so like repetitive and whatever. And we take on that attitude, especially when those tasks are unattractive. But it's in those moments that we need to understand how God looks at our work, that this work is a potential, it has potential to make God great. It has potential to connect us with the Almighty and to offer up something to Him that He'll be pleased with. So whatever you're assigned to do, work to serve Jesus Himself. That's what God explicitly says in this verse. He declares that you are actually serving Jesus Himself with every task that you've been given. Isn't that amazing? There is no greater argument in this passage to do all of our work with excellence because it's all for him. Number four, God rewards faithful service. Verse 24, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now, what you need to understand is this verse was absolutely revolutionary. You know, no slave ever really received a reward for their work. They were slaves. If they ever received anything, it was what? Punishment. Right? That's the only thing they were ever to receive. And so this verse is amazing because it promises that they're going to receive the same eternal reward as every other Christian. God literally eternally elevated the slave to the same level as every other Christian, even if that person was, even Christian kings. Right? And that affirmed these slaves so deeply. And that reward is huge. It says that they're going to receive an inheritance from the hands of God himself. How huge is that? And that's all the motivation that we need, isn't it? For us to live our lives as a worship to the Lord. I mean, if you truly love God and if you truly want to please him, and he promises a reward if we do all of our work in that way, then why wouldn't we do all of our work in a way that pleases him and worships him? Right? He rewards faithful service. Number five, lastly, will be held accountable for how we work. Verse 25, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. This verse tells us that there will be judgment. Every slave knew about judgment. They knew about punishment. This verse tells us that there will be judgment. And so God sees everything that we do. He sees all of our actions. He sees our hearts. And that's what he's you know, really contending for right now. So not only will he reward us for the great worship that we offer through our work, but he will also punish us, right? And discipline us through it. He shows no favoritism. So serve the Lord wholeheartedly. Work to worship God. Now these five, these five verses here, to any slave, they were absolutely uplifting. Slaves were being addressed as human beings who actually had a choice. Amazing. God values them as humans, and he values their service. He gives them this choice 
to worship him. They were never given choices. And the most amazing part is that God is basically saying that he's intimately involved with every work that they're a part of. They have the opportunity with every task to literally interact with Christ and to worship Christ and to be an actual devotion to him. Being a Christian for these slaves absolutely transformed them and their work. But what about masters? Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. You know, this command in verse 4, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, to the Christian master, it was really hard. You know, when Christian masters heard this one, I don't think they were that pleased because this particular command was a command to be countercultural. They knew that they were going to be ostracized by their other by other masters that were non-believers around them because they had no idea, you know, what they've been commanded. You know, and the reason why is because slaves were seen as tools. They were not seen as human beings. So if slaves were useful, they were kept. If slaves were no longer useful, they were discarded. Unfortunately, that was a very sad reality. And so, you know, if a Christian when when a Christian master sees this command to treat slaves with what is right and fair, he knows that it's going to cost him his social standing. Right? But not only that, but there's a cost to his heart. He was never trained to care for his own slave because they weren't even property. They were just tools. Because the command here to treat your slaves justly and fairly really is a command to care for the life of your slave. And that was absolutely unheard of within that culture. But the argument that Paul makes to this master, this, or to this earthly master, is a very powerful one. And the argument that he makes is this. He's saying, yes, you might be an earthly master, a master here on earth, but you are now accountable to a heavenly master, right? There is a heavenly master that you must now answer to, and he wants you to care for the lives of your slaves. Your slave, who is a Christian, is your brother, in Christ. So care for his well-being. And when it says that there's no favoritism in chapter 4, verse 1, it's once again talking about judgment. God is telling this earthly master that he sees everything and that he'll be held accountable for how he lives out his work. So even at the expense of your reputation in society, you are to serve your heavenly master with your work. Right? Isn't that huge? And he wants you to model the gospel where you are to the people around you, even if they're slaves. That is by caring for them and by being, being fair with them. It's absolutely revolutionary. So it's huge. So those are the commands that were given to the original audience back then. And that's how they would have received it. But the question for us is then, how do these commands apply to us 2,000 years later? You know, truthfully, I think it's a little bit unfair. I don't think there's really any correlation between master-slave and employer-employee. You know, so I don't really want to make that connection. If we do, it's got to be a very thin connection. However, these verses do preach some very powerful principles uh, and that apply to us and apply to all of our work, whether that work takes place at home serving our family, or whether it's volunteering here at church serving our spiritual family, or whether that work takes place at an office or in a classroom. You know, no matter what, God is giving us principle here is to 
principles here to revolutionize, hopefully, the way we do our work and make it for the Lord. You know, before I share some practical instructions on how to work for God, I want to share some biblical principles of work itself. I don't think the church talks about, you know, work enough, and hopefully we'll touch upon that today, and it'll help you uh, use your vocation to make God great. And that's our goal for doing all this, right? You know, I think a lot of Christians, we kind of... um, separate our lives into very distinct categories. Here's our faith in church life. Here's our work life. You know, here's what I do on the weekends and on nights. And here's what I do from weekdays from nine to five. You know, and a lot of times these circles, they never like uh, mix and they never connect. And that's why, uh, you know, there are many Christians who go to church very faithfully who never see their work as faith. They never get to the point in their lives where their work becomes worship, you know. And so what they do is they work simply so that they can support themselves and they or maybe to further their careers. You know, work is about them in that way. And then what they do is after work, that's when we can talk about Jesus and that's when we can go to church and worship God and and do all of our Christian-y stuff. They never make those connections. And maybe the reason why is because no one ever gave us a healthy and biblical theology of work. So what I want to do is I wanted to start out by sharing a very rudimentary uh, basic structure and theology of work. And if I can just sum it up in one sentence, it's this. All work is for God. That's it. That's the basic theology of work. All work is for God. Why? Because God created work and work is good. Genesis 2.15. Let's look at that. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work, to work it and to take care of it. In Genesis 2.15, God creates Adam, and the moment he creates Adam, what does he do? He puts him to work. He commands him to take care of the garden. So God created man to work, right? Which makes Work, good. Work was created. Oh, I didn't. I missed this one. Work was created by God so that we can serve God with it, right? So work is good. And so if Christ is redeeming all things back to its original design, then all work that we do now is now to be done for God. Do you guys see that? This is what this is our theology of work. Secondly, what did God do for six days before he rested? He worked, right? Our God is a worker. That's who he is. What's this telling us? It's like this work is good. Work is godly. And knowing that, I hope you understand that all the work that you are called to do in life, whether paid, voluntary, or unpaid, all work, that you are called to do in life, your studies, your vocation, all that work is sacred, okay? When work is done for God, it is all sacred. Studying is a sacred activity, right? Welcoming someone at church, saying hello, is a sacred activity activity. Parent-teachers conferences, writing depositions, board meetings, ordering more stock, doing stock take, they are all sacred activities. Why? Because all work is 
for God. The first thing all of us need to understand is that work was part of the original design, making work good. Work is godly. And if we are now Christians, then Christ redeemed us so that all work, paid or unpaid, can now be a sacred activity. And if Christ redeems us so that our work can be holy, then we must learn to make our work holy in whatever work we're doing. Do you guys get that? Knowing this, I want to give you four instructions on how we can work for God. Number one, make your work a worship to Christ. Verses 20 to 24. Slaves, obey your earthly masters and everything. Do it only when they're, don't do it when their eyes only on you or to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. We've talked about this you know, throughout a whole message. This first point is simply a summary of everything that I just talked about, so I'll say it really quickly. These verses are telling us that all work is for the Lord. Therefore, it doesn't matter if your boss is there or not. You know, it doesn't matter if you're on lockdown or not and stuck at home. You know, it doesn't matter if the tasks are interesting or beneficial or not. There is no room for hypocrisy or lack of integrity when we work because it is all for Christ, right? Our commitment to work has nothing to do with the worthiness of the work itself. Our commitment to work has nothing to do with the worthiness of the taskmaster or the person that gave us the work. It only has to do with the worthiness of our one true master, and that's Jesus Christ. We work for him alone. Therefore, all tasks, no matter how unpleasant, no matter how unbeneficial they might be to us, no matter how unpleasant they might be, are to be acts of worship. And since there is no such thing as a menial task to God, there should never be any menial tasks in our eyes right? Every work is an opportunity to worship Christ with all that you have. And when we do, that's when the fullness of Christ infiltrates our work worlds through us, right? So make your work a worship to him. Number two, do work with spiritual excellence, okay? I'll explain all those words later, but do, do your work with excellence. Do your work with spiritual Excellence. Verse 22 to 23. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eyes on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart, reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. These verses are calling all Christians to work with wholeheartedness, right? Which means that we are to be fully invested in doing our best in whatever work we are called to do. Why? Because it is for God. Now, please don't misunderstand me, okay? I'm not saying that we need to become the best or be the best at what we do, right? No matter how much I train, I'm never going to be as fast as Usain Bolt. I will never be the fastest sprinter in the world. We will never be the best. It's not a call to be the best. It's a call to do our best in all that we do, which means what? The bare minimum can't exist as a Christian, right? All work we're to do with all of our hearts because it's a worship to the Lord and he is worthy to receive it all, right? It's, we're serving Christ. With that said, I want to add something, and which is the context of work, okay? Um, you know, if God is the worker, 
if God is a worker and he created us to work, and if Christ redeemed us to work for his glory, then I have to believe that God will use our work and our vocation to redeem people around us for his glory. Right? This is the context of why we work. There is eternal purpose behind our work. Work is spiritual. Therefore, work becomes spiritual. It is sacred. So if we truly want our work to be excellent, it must be empowered. It must be inspired by the Holy Spirit working through us. Therefore, as Christians, we need to learn how to depend on the Holy Spirit to do our work with excellence. And this is what I mean by that. Let's look at Genesis 31 verses 1 to 3. This says, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen you know, Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I filled them with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills. In this passage, God filled Bezalel with the Holy Spirit, which gave him wisdom. Or who gave him wisdom? Knowledge, understanding, and skills to do the work. Did you guys know that the Holy Spirit gives us these things? And if we ask Him and we depend upon Him for the work that we do, the Holy Spirit will give us intelligence, will give us wisdom, will give us understanding, will give us the skills that we need to do our work. And why does He do this? Once again, the context. It's so that we can have eternal influence for His glory. Right? God gives us vocations. So that we can have positions of influence, or maybe a better way to say it, so that we can be positioned to influence people for his glory. So that we can bring the kingdom into those arenas for God. Now, once again, please don't understand, misunderstand what I'm, what I'm saying. I'm not saying that just because you start depending upon the Holy Spirit that God's going to make everyone here CEOs, that everyone's going to become the prime minister. No, that's not what we're talking about. I'm not talking about promotions. What I'm talking about is positioning. God will position you so that you can have eternal influence on the people around you. Maybe it's just to influence people. Maybe it's to influence your team. Maybe it's to influence your particular company, or maybe it's to influence an industry. But when we depend upon the Holy Spirit for those intelligence, skills, problem-solving abilities, understanding towards others and people, love, care, peace towards others, then we can become an eternal influence for them. God brought you to where you are now so that he can use you to influence those around you towards Jesus Christ. And so therefore, if we are Christian workers, then we must be people who operate with that goal in mind. We need to operate, because that's God's goal. We need to operate with that kind of mentality in all that we do in our work. And that's why work has to become a worship, because not only does it worship God, but it points others to Christ. We can actually bring Christ's fullness wherever we go and through every relationship that we have, right? And the way we do that is by being dependent upon the Holy Spirit so that we can be used to impact our fields for Christ. We need Christians in every arena of life, right, to think this way, to operate this way, to depend upon the Holy Spirit in this way so that every arena of life can be one 
for God. Christians must stop working simply for a paycheck. They need to stop working simply to advance their own careers or for a sense of personal satisfaction. Why? Because there is an eternal plan on the line here. Right? God brought you to these places, gave you, that, gave you that education, gave you those opportunities, gave you that vocation so that you could be used to reach others for Jesus Christ. God so desperately wants to use you and your vocation to do that. So let's be excellent in our work by depending upon the Holy Spirit so that we can be used to accomplish that eternal plan. Number three. Stay centered upon Christ, verses 20 to 24. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. These verses tell us that God will reward his servants. He's preparing an inheritance for us, right? And hopefully this will be motivate you through all those tough times where work is painful or work is difficult, where work is like mundane or when we're stuck at home during a lock-in for weeks on end and work gets difficult. But what is that heavenly reward? And the answer is no one really knows. But anytime an eternal treasure or an eternal reward is mentioned in scripture, it always has to do with Jesus Christ. We get Jesus. Now for those who are more mature in Christ, that's enough right? You know, that's enough to be motivated. Um, he's enough. And every day we'll wake up and we'll just serve him because we love him. But when Christ doesn't feel close to us, it gets a little harder, doesn't it? And that's why I think it's imperative that one of our priorities as Christians and Christian workers is that we need to stay close to Christ every single day, Right? And our lives need to be centered upon Jesus Christ every single day. We need to recenter ourselves upon Jesus Christ every single day. If I can say it in a biblical way, I guess, um, we need to learn how to Sabbath every single day. We need to learn how to practice the Sabbath every single day. You know, my personal opinion is that I think a lot of, a lot of Christians misunderstand this concept of Sabbath. You know, a lot of, uh, even God knew that people would forget it, people would misunderstand it, and that's why he threw it in the Ten Commandments. You know, I don't know if that's why he threw it in the Ten Commandments, but it's there, you know. But we misunderstand it all the time. A lot of times we think that Sabbath is just resting. So, okay, I took a day off today. I just slept 12 hours. I'm rested. Therefore, I Sabbath. No, you rested. There's a different word. Rest and Sabbath are different words. That's just physically resting. Sabbath means resting in God, Right? And that's a, big, that's, a, that's a total difference. When we rest in God, that means our whole life becomes about who God is. But you know what's really interesting? You know, once again, I think once again, we misunderstand it a lot. You know, like God threw it in the Ten Commandments, but once again, when we look at the Old Testament, they, they forgot about the Sabbath. And they misunderstood the Sabbath. Even today, in 2021, do you notice how we don't treat this command to observe the Sabbath like we Treat the other nine commandments. And this is what I mean. You know, when we look at the other nine commandments, you know, you are to have no other gods before you. What's our first response to that? Well, I'm like, oh, damn. You know, I worshiped other gods today, so I'm going to repent. So whenever we hear this command, you will, you know, worship no other gods, we repent. You know, do not murder. Oh, man, Jesus said that if I'm angry at my brother, I've in, essentially I've murdered him. Oh, man, I've gotten angry at so many people today. I need to repent for that. But why is it that when we read this command about the Sabbath, none of us repent? We make plans. Okay, I'm going to go to church that day, and I'm going to read a book. Da, da, da. Why, is it, why is it that none of us repent? Which is very interesting, right? And I think it's because we forget what the Sabbath is all about. Sabbath really is resting in God. And the fruit of Sabbath, if you did your Sabbath properly, you come out of it saying, wow, 
God is so awesome. I want my whole life to be about God. I want every aspect of my life to be about God. That's a proper Sabbath rest, right? And if our whole lives are not about God or for God, then I think we need to repent and Sabbath again. God gives us this one day so that we can reset our whole lives, right? And to make it about God and so that our whole lives can be an expression of the rest that we receive in him. And if we're not doing that, then we need to learn how to practice that Sabbath correctly. How often do we violate that? If that's really what Sabbath is? All the time, right? Sometimes I think Sabbath is just going to church. I did my Sabbath thing, but it's not. God wants our whole lives and our whole hearts to be restored, to live for God alone. So we need that every single to do. We need that every single day. So what does that have to do with work? Here we go. You know, when God created Adam and Eve, uh, what day did he create Adam and Eve? Did he create Adam and Eve? He created them on the sixth day, which means that the first full day of Adam and Eve's existence was spent, how? With God, in God's Sabbath day, right? What is that saying? It's saying that Adam and Eve didn't start out their life resting from their work, but Adam and Eve worked out of their rest. Do you see that? The next six days after that first day of existence was working out of their relationship, out of the fullness that they had spending that day with God. And if we learn to, to Sabbath with Christ daily, then our work can also truly be a worship rather than us worshiping our work, which happens very commonly. Our identity will always be found in a person, the person of Jesus Christ, rather than in a position, right? And our lives will always be centered upon what God did for us rather than what we could ever do for God. When we keep our hearts and our eyes focused upon Christ alone, our work will never become the tool that establishes our identity, but our work will always be expressions of it and a celebration of it. We need to fight every single day to stay, to stay centered upon Jesus Christ. Lastly, we need to, we need to model the gospel to everyone. Uh, 4.1. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Look, Jesus knows that there are bosses, there are subordinates. He knows business. He knows industries. He knows markets. He knows how they work. He knows how cutthroat they can be. But he's telling us that as real as all that is, every authority that has been established here on earth and even in heaven, every industry serves a greater master. And that is Jesus Christ. And that's God, right? And therefore, we are to operate our lives in those industries as representatives of the kingdom, right? Which means that we are to care about what God cares about. And what God cares about is his people. He cares about people's lives. And therefore, we need to care for people's lives as well. No matter what you do or who you serve or who serves under you, we are called to model the love and the peace of Christ so that all can experience the fullness of Christ in our industry through us. Through every work relationship that we have, we are to model 
the love and the peace of Christ, the gospel of Christ to them so that they can be touched by Christ's fullness. Will that invite persecution in some of our professional contexts? Of course it will, right? But when those around you go through difficult times, they're not going to look at, they're not going to search out for people who are going in the same direction as they are. They're probably going to look for the one that's going the other way, the one that's filled with hope, one that serves a greater master, one that always has the joy of the Lord within their hearts. And that's you. My guess is that they're going to come to you. And that's exactly what God wants so that we can share the hope of Jesus Christ with them. And if we're modeling the gospel of Jesus Christ with them to them daily, my guess is that God will use you powerfully to win many for Christ. So model the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around you. I know I threw a lot of stuff at you guys today, but the reality is I don't think church talks about work enough. You know, church doesn't talk enough about what needs to happen Monday through Friday, nine to five. We don't, right? And not only that, but we don't equip you enough to be successful, successful Christians in your workplace. I hope today gave you a taste of what it can be like and what God really wants, not only in you, but to do through you as a worker. God wants to use you and your vocation to be a powerful influence for his glory and to save many for his glory. So let's invite God to infiltrate every part of us so that we can be used in that way. Let's pray. Let's just learn to do all of our work as a worship to the Lord. If we haven't been doing that, let's repent of that. But let's just ask God and the Holy Spirit to help us and to anoint us so that many could come to know him through our full dedication to work for his glory. Let's become kingdom workers for his glory. Let's pray. eternal life that you gave us, but now you've given us an eternal purpose. And we thank you, God, that you continue to clarify what that is for us. And you continue to teach us how we can live that out here on earth. So not, not only so that we can experience your fullness more each and every single day, 
but so that you can use us so that many in this world can experience your fullness as well. Lord, I pray for the people within our church. Use them powerfully so that people can see and experience and know Jesus through them. And Father, we've we have this Monday through Friday, this nine to five, these many, many 40 to 60 hours that we spend with these certain amount of people. Father, we ask that you use us powerfully to be your salt and light in those arenas. And we ask, God, that you use our lives to infiltrate those places so that your glory may reign there through your believers. Father, use us in that way. Give us, help us to operate with that vision, with your vision, so that all of our work can be redeemed for your glory. Help us to work for your glory alone. God, I know during this time it's so difficult because, you know, during a lockdown we're stuck in our office, we're stuck in our bedrooms maybe for a lot of people just doing work and it's so difficult. The motivation goes away. Sometimes it can be depressing. We're lonely. We're going through so many difficult times together and, and, it, and some of us might even be scared and so it's hard. So Lord, I pray, draw your people close to you. Draw our people close to you. Be close to those who are in our ministry so that they might feel your presence. They might feel Feel your love be touched by your Holy Spirit so that we might truly know that you are there and that you care. And Lord, prompt our community to love each other and to care for each other. Not only so that we can survive, if that's the right word, but so that we could flourish as your people through these tough times. We need you so badly to do that. But we thank you that we find all that in Jesus Christ. Give us more of him so that we can work and do all work for him and his glory. We thank you so much, God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord turn his face upon you and be generous to you, be gracious to you. The Lord radiate his countenance over you and give you his peace. Amen. Have a good week, full life.